0: Today, we head back to the book of Acts, the end of chapter 9, as we continue our, our series overall, growing church in a groaning world. And these last three weeks, we've been looking at the same passage, Acts 9 32 through 43, which is full of all these exciting happenings. I mean, you can't get much more dramatic in terms of events in the scriptures than healing a lame person and raising a dead woman. Seeing many coming to faith and turning to the Lord, the passage says. Yet in, in the midst of that, we've also seen and continue to kind of reveal this truth that in the midst of that excitement and unusual events, is this underlying thread of what normal church life can be, should be, ought to be, uh, whatever way you want to phrase that. And as we come out of this season of restriction and loss struggles and trials and head into whatever the next season has in store for us, this is a very helpful orienting passage to think about, in the midst of this excitement around Peter, what what is normal church life? And as we look at it, we find out the truth that we kind of already know, right? that it's all about Jesus, but we see that here in some surprising and also some routine ways that we need to keep deep in our hearts. So as we look at this passage, would you read along with me Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43, and look for Jesus and the other ingredients that will make for normal church life. Let's read together Acts 9, verses 32 through 43 of God's holy word. Now as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up and all who heard all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas, and this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. and When they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them, and when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out of the room, and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand, and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. This is God's word. Father, would you bless our eyes, our ears, our hearts, would you bless the world by helping us more and more realize It is really all about Jesus. And to make that something more than just an intellectual fact or something about uh, a common saying, but in fact something that alters our strength, alters our purpose, that not only sustains us, but brings glory to you. Would you meet us here and do that, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Um. I was reading a book about just something kind of random, I don't remember what it was, but the guy made this comment about being uh, not allergic, but very strongly averse to cilantro. And he said, apparently there's this thing where some people can't handle cilantro and it's not an allergy you know cilantro is one of those spices that are little leaves or whatever that goes into salsa very often That's what i think of uh, and, I, and i can sympathize with that because we had a friend who made salsa and it was like cilantro with a hint of tomatoes and some other things uh it was like a salad or something i don't know but it it was just this overpowering flavor that kind of took away from the other parts and kind of dominated. You know, you need it, I think, to have a good salsa. Uh, you, you need some cilantro. But you need a bunch of other stuff, too, in, in various proportions. And we keep coming back as we look at this passage of, of this recipe for normal church life. And, and the reality that the most important ingredient is Jesus, Right? And yet there's other things too. And the reality that you know, churches are different, people are different, and some of us really value this flavor and others find that more annoying like cilantro or something. You know what? Maybe not annoying, but it's not as attractive as maybe this other flavor. You know, some of us are really zealous for evangelism and and and, and we want almost everything to be about that. Others of us are very much about fellowship, and we want it to be about that. Others of us are about gathering together for worship, and you know, we could spend hours singing and praying, and others of us are turned off by that and wanted in a smaller amount. You know, there's, there's just this, this complex, complicated reality between our individual preferences, the clear... Uh, boundaries and recipe of, of what church life should look like. And under it all, though, just the great, great need to make sure that the strongest flavor in anything we do, in all that we are about, is Jesus. That's the reality, because the church is the body of Christ, and it is all about Jesus. We've looked at that a couple different ways. Two weeks ago, uh, we, we talked about our relationship to Jesus, about our identity being found in him. Uh, that's probably three weeks ago that happened. And then last week, we looked at how that identity and our relationship to Jesus would flow into works like Jesus where we are serving others. And then this week, we kind of complete the picture and in a way, summarize those two things and come back around to the most profound truth with those things in our mixing bowl. Let's look at this last aspect. The glory of Jesus. So our key ingredient throughout it all is Jesus. Our relationship to him, our, our works that flow from that relationship that are like him. And then this third aspect is the glory of Jesus. And it's essentially talking about the source and also the result of having Jesus in our lives, that, that the source of our relationship to Jesus and our works to Jesus is, is, is the glory of Jesus. And yet also, as we engage in a relationship to Jesus and, and works like Jesus, the result is the glory of Jesus. Hopefully that will come a little more clear as we unpack this passage a little bit more. But if you think about it just on the surface, of course the source of our identity in our relationship to Jesus is all about Jesus. And our works ought to flow from that identity, but it's very important, as we saw a little bit last week, that we, we get the order right and that we recognize that part of what the scriptures teach us is that the how, how do we glorify Jesus, is 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 kind of the why as well that we do things to glorify jesus and that if we understand and orient our lives around jesus if we make it all about jesus we kind of don't have to worry about the how as much it flows and we recognize that as we grasp the how it kind of leads to the why. that It brings glory to Jesus. And let's, let's just kind of unpack it and get some flesh to that. That the glory of Jesus is both the source and the result. First of all, that means that the power of Jesus is a key ingredient. The power of Jesus. Look at Peter in verse 34. You know, he's gone to this city. He's been traveling around the region, visiting the churches. And he goes to Lydda, and he meets a man named Aeneas, who's been bedridden for eight years. He's paralyzed. And in verse 34 we read, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he, Aeneas, got up, and made his bed. Uh, Peter makes a very simple statement there, right? Who heals Aeneas? Jesus, right? Jesus. He puts Jesus first. Jesus heals you, Aeneas. Uh, Peter knows that. Peter declares that. He's very careful to express that because that's what Peter trusts. And that's what Peter's conviction is, right? That it's not about Peter, It's about Jesus. Peter doesn't heal. Jesus heals. He was very careful about that. If you just flip back a few pages here to chapter 3, Peter's firm conviction that the power belongs to Jesus comes out here in Acts chapter 3 with the healing of another lame man. If you look at verse 6 of Acts chapter 3, Peter said to this lame man at the gate of the temple courts, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. Verse 8, with a leap he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple courts with them, walking and leaping and praising Peter. Peter oh no wait, that's not what it says, walking and leaping and praising God, verse 9, and all the people saw him walking and praising Peter, no, no, no. God, verse 10, they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. What happened to this guy? He was lame and crippled, dependent upon the giving of other people, the alms, the mercy, the generous donations to just eat and provided for. And now the man is up, leaping and walking and praising God. Not Peter, praising God. Peter's very careful to make sure that people understand that. Verse 11 of Acts chapter 3, the story continues. While he, this lame man, formerly lame man, it was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement, verse 12. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us peter and john as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk the god of abraham isaac and jacob the god of our fathers has glorified his servant jesus peter says look why are you looking at us as if by our own power Somehow we have this magical ability to heal people. Or, what does the piety mean here? He's saying, or as if because we have a relationship to God, we could make this come about. How did it come about? We didn't do it, God did it to glorify his servant Jesus. The point is not to make much of Peter. Certainly not to make him a saint to whom we now must depend, as some would say. We talked about that weeks ago, right? Saint is, you are a saint. You have what Peter has. And it's not going to heal anyone. You have a confidence and a trust in Jesus who can heal everyone. It's Jesus. It's about Jesus. Do you realize that that it's not about you? It's about Jesus. It's about the glory of Jesus. Peter says that. God did this to glorify Jesus, to make much of Jesus, to make the weight of Jesus, press upon us that we could not escape it, to recognize that it's not these men doing this, that it's God at work through Jesus that Jesus heals. You know, we need to be very careful when we talk about the power of Jesus. There are many ways that that people abuse and misunderstand this power. Peter points out a couple of them by thinking it's somehow in us or by thinking it's somehow in our religion and and our activity, our piety, that because we read the Bible, because we pray, because we give, because we serve, because we witness, because of anything, we somehow have the right and are entitled to demand healing. Healing to demand some exercise of power from God. We need to be very careful, because it's not about us. It's about glorifying Jesus. As much as you might try, as hard as you might clarify it, if you make it sound like somehow it's up to you, people are going to gravitate to that. I came to faith in Jesus because he worked in my heart in 1994. I met my wife three years later and we developed a relationship and we got married two years after that. And my family continued to struggle to get the facts straight and began to credit her with straightening me up, <laughs> right? which. She has done in any number of ways, but not in that way. Because I was a dead sinner, bound for hell, broken and proud and arrogant and mean and every other thing, foul-mouthed, and God saved me. But that's hard for people to grasp, even people who have seen it happened that they want to attribute it to a human agent. Because there's so many implications if it's actually God at work, right? That's hard to grasp. But brothers and sisters, it's the truth. And we are as guilty as anybody of it that we actually begin to think, hey, it's up to me. That if I just do this or that or the other thing, God will heal this. Or God will provide that. You know, there are things we ought to do. There are things and ways we should live, right? There is good and bad and right and wrong. But none of those things entitle you to the power of God. Peter is very careful to guard that. Jesus, in fact, seems to say repeatedly that he has called us to suffer. He does not say, take up your lazy boy and follow me. Y'all have lazy boys still? Take up your recliner, your comfortable chair. He doesn't even say, take up your pillow and your sleeping bag and follow me. He says, I don't even have a place to stay. The foxes have places. The birds have places. But the Son of Man, he doesn't. He says, take up your cross. And follow me. He doesn't say take up your big bank account and follow me. He doesn't say take up your intellect and follow me. He doesn't say take up your good looks. Take up your whole and complete body. He says take up your cross. What's he saying? Well, Paul would put it this way, Paul whom in Acts chapter 9 earlier we saw Jesus say to, uh, oh what's his name, the guy who, who uh, went to visit Paul. Yeah, you can't find things. Aeneas. Different Aeneas. So he says to him what? Go, go, go to Paul because I'm going to show him how much he must suffer in my name. And Paul later kind of recounts that in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 as he's talking about his apostleship, how he was sent from God to kind of prove his credentials. And he's talking about how much he has suffered. And he relates that Jesus said to him, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for power, my power, is perfected in weakness. Jesus says to you, he says to Paul, he says to you, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, is the way another translation puts it. So Paul says what? Most gladly, therefore, I'd rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. What would that look like if we really believed that? How would that alter our conversations on Facebook, our endeavors in politics, our activities in the church our homes and relationships how would they be altered if we really believe that when i am weak that i am strong that it's actually all about jesus and his glory and not me and my comfort don't get me wrong pray for healing Expect that the one who has reconciled your sins and brokennesses on the cross will return again and even though death take you, you will rise if your faith is in Jesus and you will rise whole and complete from the inside out. No more to sin, no more to grieve, no more to sorrow. He'll wipe the tears from our eyes. So it'd be no more brokenness, no more pain, and the old order of things will pass away. That's guaranteed down the road. And it is our future hope, and it is something we can pray for, but ought not to presume upon. It is a long-term view, not the short and immediate. So as we consider the power of Jesus here, we need to be very aware that it is the power for us to grow in maturity and, Lord willing, in numbers, individually and as a church in a groaning world. And that would be very hard to handle. In fact, it would probably be crushing, if not for this second aspect that we see here. It's not only the power of Jesus, but in fact, the presence of Jesus. That the presence of Jesus Is with us. Look at Peter again in verse 40 of Acts chapter 9. He goes down to Joppa, where this woman named Tabitha or Dorcas had done many good deeds, uh, clothing the widows. Her death left a huge hole in the life of the church. They sent for Peter because he wasn't that far away. Peter heads down there. Verse 40, Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Just think about what Peter did there. No one's in the room. He's not doing something for show or for pretense. He's doing something out of the conviction of his heart. The belief that Jesus hears prayers. So much so that Peter's praying when he's all alone. He's praying out of the conviction that his words are going beyond just the sound waves in the air and they're not just hitting the ceiling, but they're going to the center of all power. And in fact, the one who has all of that power is present, is tuned in, is listening for the cries and petitions and words of his children, of his people. And Peter has had that conviction all along. If you flip back again to Acts chapter three, you can see this pattern At work in Acts chapter 3 verse 13 Peter says the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you but put to death the Prince of life the one whom God raised from the dead a fact with which we are witnesses Peter walked with Jesus when Jesus walked on the earth. Peter was a witness to the presence of Jesus on earth and to the unjust trial and treatment of the rejection of the one who was the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead despite the world trying to put to death. Peter was a witness to that resurrection And he has this confidence that though Jesus died and rose again and has ascended now into heaven, that he is still present with his people. In one sense, he's, he's, he's expressing implicitly a confidence that the Holy Spirit has come and united him to Jesus. And he's confident that, in fact, Jesus from heaven is still tuned in among his people is no doubt aware of what Jesus said at the very end of Matthew's Gospel in Matthew 28, verse 20, that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That this confidence, this conviction, drives Peter to trust in the presence of Jesus. that's rooted, you think about these two things, that the power and the presence are very much rooted in the relationship and the activity that we engage in. That the power and presence of Jesus are the source of our own relationship with Jesus and our activity for Jesus. And in fact, as we recognize that it ramps up our relationship and our activity, our works. And they lead us, in fact, to this place where we're confronted with our own weakness, where we're required to walk by faith, where we're required to let Jesus have it all, to hold loosely to everything, where we recognize that from the beginning of history, God has always come to dwell among his people and had this desire for a relationship. Though we rejected him, though we went astray, though we did what we should not have done, God continued to stoop down. And he provided for Adam and Eve after they ate the forbidden fruit, clothing and garments, and the promise that one day the seed of the woman would come and put to death their enemy. And he called Abraham out of paganism and said that I will bless the nations through you, that you, Abraham, will be blessed to be a blessing, through whom then he provided Moses, who would lead his people, drawing near to the people before they even had the law in its fullness from Sinai. That in that relationship, he would say, this is what I want you to do. I have freed you not merely to indulge yourselves, but to follow me. I have freed you to serve me, not yourselves. I've freed you to depend upon me, the righteous and holy one, God says, the one who is also the one of grace and mercy, the one who draws near and keeps his promises, though we do not. And it's this great cycle that happens that we get to see, as this plays out, even imperfectly in our own lives, that the power of Jesus working demonstrates the presence of Jesus among us. That lastly here, our third point is that the people of Jesus wind up increasing or growing. Verse 35 all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, that is the, the formerly paralyzed man, and they turned to the Lord. Skip down to verse 42. It became known all over Joppa, where Tabitha lived, that she was risen from the dead, and many believed in the Lord. As the power of Jesus works in us, as we depend upon the presence of Jesus, Things happen, and the result is the glory of Jesus. Not our glory, not the glory of Crossroads Church, not the glory of your family, and not the glory of the United States, not the glory of anything else but the glory of Jesus. If it's clear that it is the power of Jesus and the presence of Jesus at work. And I think it's no accident Perhaps you've read the Gospels lately, and you see echoes, or you're so familiar with them. You recognize, wow, this sounds an awful lot like a couple of things Jesus did. You know, he raised that one girl, and he said something like, Talitha cum, it says in Aramaic. And here, it's Tabitha arise. And in fact, in Aramaic, that would be Tabitha cum. You know, one letter difference if they were both speaking Aramaic. That sounds really similar that Jesus did that back in Luke 8, 41 to 56. That was Jairus' daughter, actually. He also healed, Jesus healed a paralyzed man in Luke 5, 17 to 26. And it's interesting, you say, well, that's like Peter then is like Jesus, but you recognize something else if you keep reading through Acts. Maybe Paul is like Peter, who is like Jesus, because Paul does almost identical miracles. P- Paul? Paul heals this guy, Oh, where is it? In Acts 14, a lame man, a guy who was, had no strength in his feet. He was lame from his mother's womb. He'd never walked. Paul tells him to stand upright, and the guy is healed. Paul raises not a dead woman, but a dead young man who got bored by Paul's preaching and fell out of a window. But that's a different sermon, right? That was a joke. A young man, Acts chapter 20, tells us, named Eutychus, he was sitting in the windowsill and he sunk into a deep sleep. As Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep. He fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. Paul went down, fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled. His life is in him. The boy raised from the dead. You could say, oh, well, that must be then the pattern, right? Every one of us should maybe be able to heal lame people and should be able to raise the dead. no. No, we're talking about the book of Acts and the foundation of the church. We're talking about this time where God is demonstrating his power and his presence that people would pay attention. They would sit up and listen and go, what is going on here? And these guys would declare to them the truth, that it is by the name of Jesus that these things are happening, that it is because we are apostles, these miracles and signs and wonders are happening That you might know the truth and believe the claims about Jesus. That God might get the glory. That Jesus might gain followers. That the people of Jesus would increase. So, I mean, what do we do with that? It's clear that we are not guaranteed the power to heal or the power to raise the dead, that Jesus can do that. So one of the orientations and perspectives we ought to have as we approach life is that of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at the fiery furnace. As they refused to bow down before the idol of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3, what did they say? King, be it known to you that we're not going to bow down to your idol and our God is able to th- save us from this fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, paraphrasing, we're not going to disobey him. That's faith, right? That's a faith, that's a confidence that will get you through the hardest of struggles. To say, I don't know what God is doing. I know he is able. So I will pray for him to act. I know he could save this person. I know he could give them wisdom. I know he could heal this disease. So I am going to ask Him to do that. To exercise His power in these ways. And I'm going to trust that He is with me and that part of His plan might be to grow me in patience as I wait. Part of His plan might be to act and answer my prayers. Either way, what we need to do is to be very careful and to be very explicit as we describe our confidence in Jesus. To give him the glory and to pray for his name to be glorified. To point to Jesus and give him the glory, that he would be clearly the main ingredient in it all. As we come out of this pandemic, as we as we try to implement our ministry plans with things like starting our English language lessons again, and offering them as we can consider how can we gather in fellowship and do something resembling Crossroads in the summer in a way that people will come out and will be wise and safe. As, as we continue to increase the numbers of people, be able to be physically present, as we continue to increase all of these ministries, it's going to be very easy for us to make it about us, whether it's, aren't we great? And better than those guys because we started getting together. We had better numbers earlier than them, right? It's about Jesus. Praise Jesus that that things are going the way they are, right? As we begin to teach English language again, and we begin to have people coming out to say, you know what, isn't God good that these things are happening? Praise Jesus. And trust in his power to work in those things, even by the simple relational aspects you know, we're, we're hoping to have some gatherings for Crossfire, the youth over the summer, or maybe at people's homes, uh, and focus on that relationship building. And to say, you know what, that's good that we can praise Jesus to just to be together and help our youth interact. That we would praise Jesus for that. There, just to keep that perspective, that main ingredient, that it's. That it's all about Jesus. That the the reason we can engage in these things, the reason we have a relationship to Jesus and we can do works like Jesus is because he's the source of all of it. That he has come and lived for us, died for us, and risen again and come into our hearts and our lives through the Holy Spirit. That's the source. But the interesting thing is, as we recognize He's the source and we more and more depend upon Him, and our strength is made perfect in our weakness, that He is glorified by His grace being sufficient for us, we recognize that the result is His glory, that He gets the credit. As we step out in faith, as we follow where He leads, His power and His presence impact His people. Keep that in your heart today, this week, in the coming weeks, as as you as you want to get ahead of what we're able to do, as you feel like maybe it's going too fast, as you feel uncertain in moving forward with things, as things look different than maybe you wanted, or as you get what you wanted to keep this perspective, that it's about the glory of Jesus, his power, his presence, and his people. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, would you be the source of our strength? Would you get the glory? all that we do, would you make our hearts centered on bringing you glory? Would you give us the grace we need to withstand what appears to be unanswered prayer or prayers that just seem to have the answer of no? Would you give us the grace to continue to glorify you when we get answers that are yes? That, oh Lord, we would recognize it's not our own power or piety, It is nothing about us. It is all about you and your grace and your mercy. Would you work in us for your glory? We are your people. You are our God. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.